Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current, classic, and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest tonight, singer, songwriter, actor, music icon, Mr. Paul Anka. Hi, Paul. Hi there. Thank you for having me on. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. I have to tell you Thank something you. funny. I, I wrote one of the books I've written is the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Yeah. And I read recently, and I'm not sure I mean, you can confirm this. Is it true that you have a small part in the first season of the Twilight Zone? No, not that I can remember. Really? It said that it said that. <laughs> see, that's why you have to talk to the the real deal here. It said, um, and there's a lot of stuff floating around the internet that is inaccurate. But it said that you were in an episode called the walk uh, called Walking Distance with Gig Young, and you played a soda jerk. Wow. Well, you know what? Give me a year. <laughs> that's that's funny. <laughs> 1959. Oh, maybe. <laughs> it doesn't stand up because I've got. So many other things that happened back then. Uh, yeah, it doesn't come to mind right now, but that could mean nothing. <laughs> <laughs> if well, you know what I'm saying, yeah. Well, tonight, my mission is to jog your memory. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, the world knows you as a singer and so involved in the music world over the years. But I, my earliest memories of you um, before I had a car and a radio, uh, I went to the movies every weekend because I lived across the street from a movie theater in West LA, the old stadium theater on Pico near Robertson. Mm. It's been a temple for the last, <laughs> last 60 years. Um, but um, one of the first movies I remember going to uh, at the old Carthay Circle, which was a big old uh, classic movie house, uh, uh, was The Longest Day. Oh, that's 60s. That's, uh, that I remember. <laughs> well, that, that, I, fi <laughs> that yeah. I figured. I, I ended up writing a chapter in one of my books uh, on The Longest Day. I interviewed a lot of the behind the scenes people. And I remember that uh, I was reading a biography of Daryl F. Zanuck, um, the great uh, producer who put that film together. Mm -hmm. And he said that he had this huge cast, but he felt that to reach young people at the time, he needed to cast people who that the audience, the young audience could identify with, because I guess he recognized that the youth audience, even for a World War II epic, was important. And he decided to cast some rock and roll singers. Mm -hmm. And I... I would love to know uh, what you remember about how you suddenly got involved in this epic war picture. Well, an epic war picture, indeed, uh, one of the most important films that genre, I think, uh, ever made, and certainly an honor for me to work with someone like Zanuck, realizing I was one of those rock and roll kids, uh, hoping that what I was doing was going to last, and, you know, just looking to my next record and what was the future with rock music and pop music in its incept in its uh, from the inception was just, you know, brand new to a lot of people. So when you get a phone call with uh, that kind of foundation, 
that you wanted to go to France and by Darrell F. Zanuck, et cetera, uh, you go, yeah. And when you get there, yeah, there was Tommy Sands and Fabian and all of us that uh, were rock and rollers, you know, in different types of music, obviously. And uh, me being the writer type, so I was happy to be doing anything. And um, when we got the call and I showed up and, and realized what he was doing and getting the younger demographic, I said, yeah, why not? You know, I mean, when would I have ever had a chance to be in a film like that, let alone with, you know, guys that I idolized, you know, John Wayne and Burton and Bitchum and all these guys who were twice my age. So when I got there, we realized that this young element that he had uh, chosen to come over, there was a purpose to it, certainly eclectic with us there and then all the other actors. And it was great, you know, it was just a great honor. It was great to be there, the, the imprint of it and the way that it hit all of us me personally was just overwhelming. I mean, you know, he literally had armed forces from Germany down there and we had thousands of people on the beaches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, so to the point, um, you know, I guess which rounded it off for me was in asking him, you know, who was doing the music. And he, uh, he said, there's not gonna be, <laughs> there's gonna be no music and no love story. I said, oh, great. <laughs> and I think I pestered him Two weeks later, he said, no music, no love story. And, you know, the payoff for me in expanding the statement that you'd made in terms of us young rock and rollers, I took my own money and I went into a studio when I got back in New York because I was really inspired being there and uh, felt confident because, uh, you know, I had another theme that I had to fight to get, the Tonight Show theme for Johnny Carson. And I went in and I put it all down, you know, my vision and the experience being there and, and wrote what then became after that, the um, theme song for the longest day, which was really the big payoff for me. I mean, that was just a, a moment in time when I got the telex back from him because I didn't hear from anybody for a while. He, was, <laughs> he said, there will be music, no love story. But there will be music. <laughs> so yeah, there I was in the middle of all that and the song. And when we broke with it, the premiere, it was, I, I was just elated. You know? Now, there's, you're absolutely right. There's very little kind of scored music in the movie, except for some drums occasionally. Mm -hmm. But there is this kind of theme that relates directly to your song. There's this da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, which yeah. actually comes in as score before your, you know, in addition to your song. Was right. that was that score? Obviously, that score must have been influenced by what you delivered. Well, we he then conferred with me, and I told him that because I'd lived in France and England, I was you know traveling all over the world. That I that I was very taken with a guy named Maurice Jarre, and you know Maurice Jarre, like Ennio Morricone, they all emerged out of that music scene, pop scene, what have you. And he said, "Yeah, I'm going to check on that," and they took my demo, you know, back then it was all on an acetate vinyl. There was, you know, no technology, obviously. And they took it to them and you're correct. They took that theme melody. And I don't think there was more than know, six minutes maybe of uh, music in the whole three and a half hours. There was very, very little. Yeah. It's, it's funny because the full orchestra comes in only a few times in the movie. I remember 
uh, cer certainly at the end, but by, I think there's a couple moments in the movie where the music swells to show the, uh, you know, the vastness of the U.S. Naval Ar Armada. And uh, yeah, no, it was very, very effective. And I think years, uh, I think, well, first of all, for me, um, I'm 10 years younger than you. So I was just 10 or 11 when the film came out. And uh, I, I, it was probably one of the first soundtrack albums I ever had. Right. Um, I'm just trying to remember if your song was on an album that they released. Do you remember? Yeah, oh, it was. It was, um, it was released. Uh, Mitch Miller did it. Okay. An album, and Mitch Miller did it with a big chorus, and then it was on an album of whatever, however they put it all together. Yes, it was represented. Got it. Got it. Now, you're. Did you have? I mean, obviously, you were uh, twenty something. You were. This is early in your life. Did you yeah. have a uh, a a connection to World War II? Was your family at all involved in it? Yeah, I lost a couple of uncles. Uh, oh, you did. You know, back then, I was born in '41, but later found out that uh, you know, being from Canada, we participated in in our way. But I, I'd lost a couple of folks there. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. In fact, the Canadian Army was very uh, active on D-Day and landed on those beaches. So um, I have. Uh, it's funny because in doing the research for my combat films book, I came across a trove of photographs and if i'm not mistaken i have a great photo of you playing chess with john wayne john wayne <laughs> <laughs> yeah i tell a joke about that because he was one of the first guys that i met when i landed there and zanuck took me over to meet everyone etc um the joke i do is uh, zanuck says paul say hello to john wayne and i look up and i look up and i keep looking up and i keep looking up and i keep looking <laughs> And he, he said, what are you doing in a foxhole, kid? I said, I'm not in a foxhole, sir. <laughs> so I remember meeting this immense human and being totally intimidated. And uh, he was very, very cool. And one thing led to another. And you're right. That's a cool photograph of he and I sitting there playing chess, correct? How did you do? Oh, I probably lost. <laughs> <laughs> Now you you play for those probably three people in the world who haven't seen the longest day. I mean, uh, Paul plays a ranger who's part of the assault team on Point de Hoc, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, which of course was responsible for taking out supposedly these heavy naval guns that could have threatened the beachhead. And uh, I, in watching, I, I've seen the movie dozens of times, and I always remember your line of dialogue where mm. you, you're held up to look over the landing craft ramp, and you see, and I think your 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 uh, line was something about the fact that three grandmothers could sweep us off right. like a sugar cake. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And then I think the other line at some point was when I finally went through everything and landed in the, uh, I think one of the bunkers up there, and they, I had my life vest on, and they said, but well, you know, your life vest still on. I said, I can't swim. I think that was my life. <laughs> so uh, what's interesting is um, you actually filmed where this happened. Oh, right there, right on the dime. We're exactly where it happened. And uh, that even made it more meaningful and, and just kind of penetrated your soul when you were got down to thinking about what those 
real deal people had to go through and climbing up those ladders and you know with such sacrifice and courage going through all of that no we were right there exactly where it all happened without doubt yeah I, I used to work for Showtime and I worked on a film with Charles Durning, yep. the, great, the great character actor. And yeah. at lunch one day, I asked Charles about his World War II experience. And he said he he was a ranger. He was one of the guys. You know, you think of Charles Durning as this kind of portly actor. Yeah. The last person you think of him as being a, a tough as iron ranger. Mm -hmm. And he was, yeah, he, he had to climb that hill. I actually was there in 94 on our, our honeymoon with my wife. We, we went to the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings, and we actually listened to President Clinton give his speech, Odd Point du Hoc, which was really, I, so I felt like I was right there where you guys were. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about uh, the shooting? Um, uh, do you remember, I mean, getting your uniform on and, and the direction, what, 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 what brings back memories for you about the actual shooting? Well, there was a lot of shooting. I've never heard so much ammunition and guns going off in my life. So, <laughs> punning off of shooting. But, you know, I remember getting fitted, you know, I'm not really a tall guy. And, uh, you know, they had to fit the uniform uh, to fit my body, obviously. And, uh, it wasn't an ordeal, you know, we went through the process. A lot of us were in a big wardrobe kind of hall and they were taking each of us. What I do remember, which was kind of curious to me and, and funny after the fact, you know, I had trouble getting a helmet that would fit and uh, we finally got it. And the irony was when I went up the ladder, I think somebody in front of me had knocked my helmet off and we're shooting. And the damn helmet goes flying, but I kept climbing. And when I finished and we had to like do it again and then do the shots up on the landing, they said, well, you, we can't put a helmet on you because you lost it going up in the ladder and it won't match. So if you remember correctly, I'm running around with no helmet on for all of my moments that I was in the film with no helmet. <laughs> so that was kind of wild to me that, uh, here I am with no helmet on, and I said, "Well, now maybe they'll recognize me back home or something." Now, in in yeah. the in the logistics, the Rangers carried the Thompson submachine gun as your primary weapon. Yeah. Uh, now, over the years, I've talked to people who've carried Thompsons, even in movies and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, was that a real Thompson, or was that a wood Thompson? You know, I don't remember. I know that it had a kick to it and it, they gave us all lessons and uh, to just get used to the kind of vibe of it. Uh, but to, to be precisely, I, I don't know. I'd have well, to if, you if you fired it, then it was a real one. The thing that oh, I- Oh, we fired I, it. Oh yeah, we fired it. Oh yeah. It. Well, then it, then it must've been heavy. Oh, it's very heavy. No, you had to get used to that grip and the jolt from, uh, from shooting it for sure. And I, you know, I'd used other uh, guns in other films that I did, but but that was a very heavy gun. Yeah. Now you're on you you're part of uh, a team that includes uh, Tommy Sands and Fabian. Had you known them? Yeah, I knew well very well. I knew Tommy. Uh, uh, yeah, I knew Tommy, and then he'd married uh, Nancy Sinatra, so I knew that connection. Fabian, I knew because I I was from the East Coast and. 
worked in New York and I'd go to Philly because I did a lot of American bandstand, you know. Uh, right. Pop music was in its infancy state back then. So you pretty much knew everybody because it was a much smaller community than it is today. I mean, you can't even keep up with what's going on today. But back then we all knew each other and Philly was the hangout because that was the town that spawned all those teenage idols. You know, I was a Canadian and I was kind of out there in the left wing. But when I wanted to hang, I'd hang with Fabian and Frankie Avalon and Bobby Rydell, all those guys in Philly. And Fabian was one of the guys that, uh, that I knew. And he ultimately, they came over to the studio where I made my records and they, they recorded his first record, Turn Me Loose. And uh, he was a nice guy, but you know, he wasn't, he was good looking and everybody was into that good looking thing back then, you know, much to the chagrin of those of us that were purists in terms of just writing and talent, but he was a nice guy. And they, they brought him in to uh, record at my place and with my engineers at Bell Sound. And I remember I came in a week later cause I was in the middle of an album and they said, man, our, our, our work was cut out for us. I said, what's going on? And they said, we did like a hundred splices. And that means, you know, today with digital and everything, you can pretty much do what you want. But back then, if you wanted to find a note or the right word or what have you, you had to cut the tape with a razor blade, cut a piece of uh, scotch tape and tape it together. But with Fabian on the first record, there was like a hundred slices trying to get every word correct. And it was just very humorous because you either sang back then or you had a problem. And, uh, you know, we used to tease him a little. He was a nice enough guy. But Fabian, I knew very well. And I still see uh, Frankie Avalon to this day. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Actually, I want to ask Fabian if he'll come on the show to talk about uh, a little movie he did about the same time that you were doing The Longest Day. He was John doing... Wayne film? I'm was sorry? It, was it a cowboy film with John Wayne? Uh, no, actually, it was a comedy he did with Jimmy Stewart called Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. Oh, because I knew he did a cowboy film after that. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of what that is. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you also worked with the young George Siegel and, and of course, Robert Wagner, who was more of a veteran. They must have been yeah. fun to be around. Well, they were great. You know, RJ's ever since that film has been a very, very a good friend of mine for years. And he's close to me and to Jason Bateman, my son-in-law, and Amanda, who's married to him. We're all very, very close friends. And yeah, we would have a lot of fun. And, you know, George back then was a very serious actor. He yeah. hadn't evolved into what we know, may he rest, in, in, in comedy where he finally settled in. He was a very serious guy. And, and uh, his work was very serious until he evolved, as I said. But they were a great company and great fun. And RJ is just, just a great human being. You know, I've, I've had many great times with him and Sinatra and everybody else. And, He's up in Aspen now. We talk you know, every month just to see how things are going. Sure, sure. Now, I, I also read that you met your first wife in France. Um, not directly. My wife was a big model in France and all over the world. She was Eileen Ford's top model. Where I met her actually was in Puerto Rico. Oh. And she had been brought over from France by Eileen Ford to do a um, commercial on the beach for Bernard Lavat company, the Lavat company. So she was, um, she was doing this, you know, commercial or shoot on the beach 
think she was about 18 or 19. And I was down in Puerto Rico singing, but I brought this quasi-married woman, not in a good situation, called Shirley Ornstein, <laughs> beautiful girl from New York. And uh, I was down there with Shirley. And I didn't, I didn't know that my wife, may she rest, was down on the beach shooting this commercial. And uh, Shirley came home and she said, oh, they're shooting a commercial down there while you were at Soundcheck and there's this pretty girl and they were doing, and, oh, great, you know. So that night we went to a party afterwards thrown by somebody in Puerto Rico. And uh, this beautiful creature walked in and I was with my cousin and Shirley and I said, oh, that's a beautiful girl. Shirley said, that's the girl on the beach. I said, you're right, Shirley, you're going home tomorrow. <laughs> Go mend things with your husband. So I met Anne first uh, uh, down in Puerto Rico, and then she left and went back to New York and Paris, and then I was in pursuit. <laughs> but I did get married in Paris at the okay. Yeah, we got married there. Well, um, the longest day will always be with us, and you and your life preserver will always be with us. But you're absolutely right. I remember you holding your Thompson without your helmet on. So that makes complete sense. Yeah. Now, I have to tell you mm. that the other film I want to talk to you about tonight is Look in Any Window. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I have kind of an odd connection to it because I grew up uh, kind of across the street from uh, a new housing development. We actually moved out of Pico Robertson and we moved into Beverly Wood. And there was a new housing development on... Um, Cataraugus and Beverly Drive. I'm getting very detailed here. I don't need to be. But um, I love the idea of, of a suburban housing tract and, you know, all the new people moving in. And for some reason, ever since I've seen Look in Any Window, I think of my kind of wonder, wondering what was going on in that same neighborhood. And of course, Look in Any Window completely takes place in suburbia. And for those of the listeners who don't know the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, Paul plays a young a teenager who's a lonely teen and who uh, resorts to peeping in windows uh, to get some attention. And I have to say that it, uh, it's a very effective movie for me. Some people consider it a B movie, but I thought you were terrific. How did you get involved in that one? Uh, well, yeah, it was a B movie. It is a B movie. And um, it it was brought to me I'd done a couple of films part of that Albert Zugsmith some stuff at MGM Girlstown a few things like that and I guess from that there was a platform um, of interest from agents and etc and they'd come to me with I think the writer and the director and through um, General Artists Corporation who said they're doing this film blah 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 blah, blah and uh, they think you'd be right for the part and as I read it, I said, well, I'm in a mask most of the time, so okay. And uh, I said, yeah, you know what? Where was I going? I had a lot of hit records. Uh, I was traveling all over the world. I was you know, somewhat taken with the film process at that point, even though I felt it took a lot of time you know, to get two minutes. I'd have to spend two days. And I didn't really like that. I was somewhat spoiled to the fact of showing up, singing, getting a check and going home. But I... I, I thought it was very interesting to get involved with film when I felt it would be right. So when they brought it to me and explained to me the whole concept uh, of the film, um, I said, yeah, you know what? 
I'm young. I got nothing to lose. I like it. I like the fact that uh, that I'm playing this character that's not exactly in the middle of all the action and a loner. And I said, yeah, let's do it. So, and I like the people. And I learned kind of earlier in, in my career to kind of like the people I was working with and getting that form of trust with them when I trusted them a lot. And it was fun, you know, it was, it was, it was a nice little film. You know, I, I like Ruth Roman and everyone else that I was working with. And I think it was a Gigi Peru. Is that her name? Gigi Peru, is she in that? Gigi, you know, it's a good one. Gigi Peru, I think. Uh, Perot, yeah. Yeah, Gigi played the the daughter of your neighbor's uh, mother, yeah. uh, played by Carol Matthews. Um, yeah. Ruth Roman plays your mother, Jackie Fowler, yeah. and Alex Nicole plays your father. You and ja and Jack Cassidy was actually Jack making Cassidy. his film. Yeah. Yeah, Jack Cassidy, who later went on to some great things and kept in touch with him. So, yeah, I like the cast I, I, and everyone around me that worked with me, you know, agents, whatever, you said, you know, it's safe, you know, it's not going to hurt. And that was it. So it was a lot of fun because, you know, it was it was really challenging, you know, the running around and, you know, the moodiness of it and then getting that mask fitted and then running around, throwing that on and, and being hidden behind all of that was very interesting. Oh, yeah. And actually, if you look at it today, it's kind mm. of, you know, you know, we, everyone points up to the James Dean movie in 55 Rebel Without a Cause. But this is very much in the same vein of exploring mm. the life of teenagers. And for those of the listeners who haven't seen it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it gets a little melodramatic at times, but what anchors mm. the picture I thought was your performance. Cause you, I felt like you were really a lonely kid who just didn't have anybody to talk to. Well, I'm just a lonely boy, lonely and blue. I didn't write that for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was now, like the my big number one records and it was lonely doing what I was doing well you know another thing and I tried to look it up in all the music services but there's a very good song in look in any window I think I wrote it yeah exactly and one of the yeah. things I wanted to ask you about is uh what happened to that song <laughs> you know it, it went the way of a lot of songs it was uh you know they asked me to write it for the film so I tried to make it indigenous to the film, it was recorded. Uh, I don't know. I didn't know that it. I didn't think it had a chance to really do anything beyond the film. But you know, you you kind of set off a flag in my head. I got to find out. I can, I don't think I could even hum it for you right now. But I mean, it's I'm very it's very it. soulful. It it opens yeah. the movie, and then there's bits yeah. of it in the middle of the movie uh, when mm. you're kind of wandering around. I, I, you know, I kind of, I'm a nut about film music. I, I, like, I like to collect uh, things. And this is, this is uh, you know, again, like I said, I went to some of the music services and I didn't see it in any of the listings. So that's why I wanted yeah. to ask you about that. I don't, you know, I would have to look, look into that and see what that status is. You know, I've written things for films. I mean, No Way Out, the Kevin Cosner film and that stuff. So I've had a lot of, you know, fun doing those kind of things, but that one I'm going to look into because I, I I just don't know where it is. You know, it's probably well, I, I, please keep me posted because I uh, I yeah. would love to promote it, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, now I, I know the the fans will all want me to ask you about the Carson theme. I mean, how how mm. iconic how iconic can you get than yeah. to be responsible for the Carson theme? Tell me how that came about. 
Well, you know, a lot of things in our business, it starts with the phone call, but a lot of it happens, you know, just by circumstance, accident. That particular theme that I wrote for Johnny, um, I was doing a TV special in England for Granada TV, and they wanted like an hour and a half. Or, you know, it was quite lengthy. And I said, well, let's get some comedy break. Because, you know, at that point, I was a kid and I didn't have a lot of stuff. And they sent me these kinescopes. And uh, one of the kinescopes that I looked at was this guy that had a children's program. He had to show up at eight in the morning with these kids. I mean, like four or five, six-year-old screaming kids. And the problem was he drank all night. So, <laughs> and Johnny was a drinker. Uh, but anyway, he, so he'd get blitzed and barely make it to work. And it was a very funny bit because by the time he walked in, his head was, you know, 10 times bigger than it was supposed to be. And these kids are screaming and it was just very funny. So let's use that guy. So Johnny came over and uh, he did his bit on the show with me. And then I came back to New York and uh, I was walking out of a building on 57th Street. And I ran into him and his manager. Hey, John, how you doing? Oh, fine, you know, plugging away. And he said, I'm thinking of um, taking over this show, The Tonight Show, for a couple of years. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, uh, I said, great. He said, I'm going to change this and do this. He says, why don't you write me a new theme? And that's the wrong thing to say to me. So I said, yeah. So I, uh, I put this song that I had down on demo. Very, what I felt catchy, because I knew it would only play for about you know, 20 seconds. And uh, I sent it to him. Well, it, it was not unlike the longest day, no music, no love story. Um, he got back to me, he says, I love it, but Skitch Henderson, the band leader, who was probably what, three times my age, maybe at that point, said, I'm not gonna have some kid, you know, come in here and blah, 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 blah. And I'm gonna write it, I'm not doing it. So he gave me the bad news and uh, I said, wow. I said, well, Johnny, listen, you, you know, I would love to do it. Why, why, how about I give you, half of my writer's royalty and half of the publisher. And I got a call back a couple hours later from his manager says, you know what, we're, we're gonna find a way to use this, we'll take it. I had <laughs> wow, that, that is one insane incentive. Yeah, exactly. So they took it and look at it, didn't, the two years turned into what, how many years? 30 some years, I don't know. It was on forever and it was, you know, the longest played theme and we both did very well with it and um, you know, a lot of people don't know the story nor that I was involved or wrote it. And I love their reaction when they, when they find out because it's just not one of those things you would be exposed to, frankly. That's great, that's great. Um, thank you for clarifying that. Um, mm -hmm. So here we are in the year 2022 Mm -hmm. uh, think, think, looking back on those crazy early days when you were recording the kids, you know, the teen songs and just breaking in, it, it must be, it must be crazy for you to think back the way things were done then and the way things that are done now. Um, mm -hmm. is it, is it, is it kind of overwhelming how different things are? No, it's not overwhelming. If you have an understanding of it and you know, you, you stay involved. I've always been, you know, contributing every decade and I've never been one to just sit back and 
you know, to try not and embrace it. I mean, my suggestion to everybody out there is, you know, don't look at all of this and say, oh, yesterday was this and it was great and blah, blah, blah. Because you, the evolution of life and music and art and everything, you know, it, it's happening and it's going to keep happening. So I had an understanding of it and I utilized it in terms of the technology. And as the business changed, I just kept doing it, you know, through the 60s and in the changes. And then I had hits in the 70s and then the 80s and the 90s. And I look at it all and, you know, it doesn't overwhelm me because, you know, I understand it and accept it and I work within it with people. And uh, I think that, you know, I, I look at it in the, in the tragic way in that because of the technology, a lot of the music you hear amongst some talented people, people just can't sing anymore, you know? They don't sing and they don't play instruments and it's all created with beats and technology, which isn't my thing. Although I do use the technology in you know, certain recordings. So it doesn't really uh, in any way have me scratching my head. I mean, not unlike, you know, your passion, all the movie, the movie business, look at it. It's just not a business anymore. It's uh, it's going through through drastic change. Uh, you know, those that have the power and, and hold the card have to wake up and really get a better assessment of the consumer as to where they're really at. You know, streaming is huge. People are staying home and they're watching it on television. And, you know, that's a big jolt for a lot of people I know in the film business, other than the big stuff. You know, you, you want to watch Dune and you want to watch West Side Story and all that stuff on a bigger screen, but that's ever-changing. And like the music business, it's ever-changing. But, you know, I'm involved, I've, you know, I've been bought out partially by a big company and I'm very much involved with, you know, all these buyouts that are going on and where music is at today and what it's doing. And, you know, I had my last big hit with Drake and Michael Jackson. So, you know, I've had Michael Jackson's last three hits. So it all means I've been a part of it and I've been feeling you know, what you can reap from it. So no, it doesn't bother me. Am I concerned about its content sometimes? Yeah. But, you know, when you, you get to understand that most of this music for years and years, it, it, it's the black culture that's driving it. It's far back to blues and uh, the beginning of music. It's always been the black culture as it is today. It's driving this music. And there's a lot to learn from that. There's a lot to understand from that because... There's a lot of great talent out there and I appreciate talented people, no matter what decade I'm working in, there's nothing overwhelming about it because I'm playing with the house's money now. I mean, I've got a new album coming out with my documentary this year. And, you know, I've had my Michael Buble success and all that stuff. So no, no, I, I, I kind of look at it all like I look at life and I say, okay, that's the way it is and here's what we're gonna do about it. Tell us a little bit about your documentary. Well, uh, Sidney Kimmel Pictures, he's a big independent filmmaker and a very prominent one, and they do great work. Uh, they've given me X amount of dollars, quite substantial, to do my documentary of my life. They think there's a story there to be told from, you know, once I started in Mafia days in Vegas and Rat Pack and all that stuff. So we're now looking for directors. Uh, you know, it's a process. Irving Azoff is my executive producer, my friend, and uh, we're interviewing directors. So I want to get somebody that gets the vision, that understands music, that understands 
you know, that I don't want it to be just a talking head situation of my friends telling me how great I was or is it was. <laughs> so it's, it's in a stage of development and, uh, you know, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Uh, one thing about the film business is, uh, yeah. and obviously the streaming business that's kind of they're melded, is that feature length documentaries now get a lot of attention. I mean, there was mm -hmm. a period where you couldn't, you couldn't get anybody to watch a documentary unless it was on PBS. And now, yeah. now you can do amazing things. I, I've, I've done a couple documentaries. I love the form and I love the, the whole ability to collect material. And I, I would assume that there's plenty of footage of you working. There's everything. There's warehouses full of stuff. There's file cabinets full of stuff. Uh, you know, it's the yellow brick road today, documentaries. Everybody and their maids are making them. And uh, there's, there's no shortage of those wanting its content. And uh, I'm just, you know, getting the right people to come and look at all of this material. I mean, better them than me. There's just 60 years of it. And um, if, if I hear the right thing and somebody's passionately involved, then we're going to move forward. I've got the money. I just need the filmmaking. Sure, sure, of course. Well, listen, Paul, uh, just going down memory lane with you talking about the movie stuff is so, so fun for me. And I know the listeners are interested in this aspect of your life that you don't talk about that much. And I'm glad I brought it out. And I wish you so much luck with your documentary. I think people will find it very interesting. And, and I continued success with all of your ventures. You're somebody who's just not going to go out and play golf. I, I know that. Oh, no, I don't. You know, I'm, I've been very active. We've got the biggest tour ever now. You know, we, we've been on it and we're starting in June and then I leave in July and start in Paris and I end up in Israel and then I come back and we start another tour. We're booked right through next March and then we're talking Australia and Asia where I've been going for years. No, I don't, uh, I don't stand still. They throw dirt on you if you do so I'm, I'm not one to do that and I keep the old man out you know I don't look at it in terms of, of age and all that kind of stuff I want to stay active and uh, just who I am I've been doing it since I was a kid and I'm not going to stop it's all about health you know these past two years my my first occupation was staying healthy and I hope we're out of the woods with all that kind of stuff but uh, no no I I'm forging ahead I just keep doing it because I love it and it's good for me and i got a great fan base and as long as they're around i'm going to be around doing it yeah that's that's great um listeners we've had a wonderful time this is steve rubin with the lock 22 network saturday night at the movies we've had a, a wonderful chat with mr paul anka please tune into our other website or i should say our other uh podcast platforms amazon apple spotify and thank you for supporting our site. And thank you, Paul, so much. Steve, I thank you for having me. And uh, to all your listeners and your supporters, I've had a wonderful time. And maybe when the doc comes out, we'll come back and visit and uh, have something to talk about. That would be terrific. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye.